Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show live on January 11th, 2023, just after 4.02 p.m. Eastern Time. So that's uh, 1.02 p.m. if you're in beautiful British Columbia. It is, uh, that means just after 2 o'clock for those of the Andrew Lawton Show's listening and viewing audience in the lovely province of Alberta. And I always get mixed up on where Saskatchewan is in relation to uh, the times a year, because I know it's, I think it's like two hours, Saskatchewan right now, and except for when daylight savings is off. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, you know what time it is in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba. Uh, we are just after three o'clock in Atlantic Canada, where it gets really wacky. We've got uh, those of you in the Maritimes at five and a nice 533 for our listeners and viewers in Newfoundland and Labrador. So wherever you are listening from, we welcome you to the show this is actually going to be my last Andrew Lawton show, not forever, but my last Andrew Lawton show from this studio for a couple of weeks because I'm actually tomorrow on my way to Switzerland. I am not doing the big ski trip. I'm not doing a cheese tour. I am not spinning around in a field and recreating a scene from The Sound of Music. I know that was Austria, but the scenery is very similar, and I did that last time. No, I am there for the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, which kicks off this uh, basically on Monday, but uh, there's a little bit of uh, preparation they do ahead of time that makes it worth being on the ground, and I am going there for you. True North is, for the second time, going to be covering the WEF's annual meeting. And this one, by Klaus Schwab's determination and description, this is the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, it's going to have unprecedented participation. It's going to have more heads of government, heads of state, finance ministers, foreign ministers than they've ever had before. And as I mentioned on yesterday's show, this includes a couple of Canadian cabinet ministers. We know Christia Freeland is going to be there. She is the finance minister and deputy prime minister. We also know that Mary Ng, who is the uh, international trade and economic development and small business, middle class, prosperity. I don't know, that's another one. She's the trade minister. She's going to be there as well. And as we learn today, we actually have some new information that we didn't have yesterday. Freeland and Ng will actually be speaking at the WEF. Uh, Christian Freeland, let me just pull it up here, is on a panel called Restoring Security and Peace. She is going to be speaking alongside Fareed Zakaria from CNN and Jen Stoltenberg from NATO and the president of Poland and Avril Haines, who's the uh, director of national intelligence from the office of the director of national intelligence. I think she could probably use a bit of a spruce up of her title there. And then Minister Ng is going to be on a panel, not as distinguished, but still distinguished, uh, with the Financial Times uh, editor Martin Wolf, with the CEO of uh, Holkim, uh, Jan Jan Yenish, I believe is his name, and India's Minister of Railways, Communications, Electronics, and Information Technology. Now, there's a portfolio for you. Uh, now, interestingly enough, the topic of Mary Ng's panel here, bricks or clicks, what kind of investment do economies need? So it's basically what should government be throwing away your tax dollars on? Uh, Christia Freeland, who is the finance minister, is speaking about security and peace. 
Now, obviously, she was Canada's foreign minister, but I find it interesting that she has never wanted to stop being Canada's foreign minister, even when they gave that job to uh, Melanie Jolie. Uh, so I think that the rumors that Freeland might be auditioning to become the new Secretary General of NATO are probably, there's probably some truth to that. So we'll see if she aces the audition at the World Economic Forum. That is on January 18th, so exactly one week from today that uh, Freeland's panel is taking hold. And we've got lots of Canadians there. We've had some time to go through the agenda, and uh, we have Mark Carney, who's on three panels. I think that might actually be a, a new record, all Carney all the time. Uh, we have the CEO of BMO. We have someone from a, a group called the Tamarack Institute or the Tamarack Foundation, which I, I'm not too, too familiar with, but I'll do a little bit of digging before next week. All of this is to set the stage for what last week or last year when I was there, uh, someone characterized as billionaire Disneyland. And it was actually a, a remarkably apt comparison because you have all of these global elites that fly in on their private jets that take their limos to uh, sessions where they talk about how it is important that we live with less and how it's important that we transition away from fossil fuels and how we do what my personal favorite from last time was uh, install Alibaba carbon footprint tracker. Take a look. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Hmm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Ooh, stay tuned. Yeah, you got to stay tuned for that. I got to check my phone now. Do I have my personal carbon footprint tracker installed? Nope, not yet. So uh, Alibaba won't know how I got to Switzerland, uh, what I've eaten in Switzerland. It won't be the bug sandwich, I assure you, uh, unless there is, uh, well, nothing else on the menu there. But what's happening that I find fascinating is these discussions are had in a very nonchalant way. And a lot of the time, people don't really pay attention to them. And, and and sometimes things will seep out of the hallowed halls of Davos and into the mainstream. For example, that uh, famous essay from a few years ago about owning nothing and being happy. This has now uh, become a bit of a refrain that uh, people are familiar with and, and one of the more pervasive criticisms of the WEF. But a lot of the time, these things are discussed among people that are in very real positions to do something about the ideas they're championing. Heads of government, heads of corporations, heads of uh, non-governmental organizations, heads of uh, myriad groups as well. And well, these discussions are not legally binding, they tend to lay out a roadmap a roadmap that all of these activist types are all too willing to follow. And I told the story previously, there was this one weird thing that happened in Davos where the UN Sustainable Development Goals, this is this thing, it looks like a, they've got a logo that looks like a Trivial Pursuit board with these little different colored pie wedges. And you're walking around, you see people wearing these sustainable development goal pins. And you're like, oh, wow, they must work for the UN. Oh, wow, that guy. Must... And, and then at a certain point, I'm like, wow, a lot of UN staff are here. And I realized that they were not actually UN employees. They were just like one guy, the president of Microsoft, was wearing a UN sustainable development goals pin just because he wanted to show off how committed Microsoft is to these SDGs. So the challenge that I've always raised with people when they talk about con the, the more conspiratorial thinking of Klaus Schwab pulling the strings of Justin Trudeau. That's not the problem. 
of Davos. That's not the problem of the World Economic Forum. The problem is that these groups are laying out ideological roadmaps that people like Justin Trudeau enthusiastically follow that people like Christian Freeland enthusiastically want to bring back to Canada and know that they have backing and support from the private sector, from other government leaders, from the United Nations, from Klaus Schwab. And that's, I think, more dangerous than there being some puppet master that you could overcome by just voting out the person who is being controlled by the puppet master. That's not what's happening there. What's happening is that there's a, a platform that's being put forward in which they claim there isn't a particular agenda that it's all about dialogue and cooperation and these things. And everyone comes to the table and they all talk about which ideas they want to champion. But the problem is that you can't vote these people out. You can't actually vote out the facilitators and conveners at Davos who do have an agenda, who do have policy prescriptions. And we see that very clearly from some of the things that they decide to entertain. And I would want to play a couple of clips for you from the last session, just so you understand the value of being there on the ground and, and following this as closely as we will. But first, I want to share with you a clip from Klaus Schwab himself. Now, this was a press conference that he and World Economic Forum directors held yesterday. And this was, I think, a very fascinating uh, example of how the messaging just doesn't even try to make it so that the critics have nothing to go on. Like Klaus Schwab is single-handedly a content mill. This was how he described the importance of being there in person. It is so exciting that at the beginning of the year, we can meet again in person. Only personal interaction creates a necessary level of trust, which we need so much in our fragmented and fractured world. To bring people together for an informal dialogue in a remote Swiss village such as Davos can be or should be a good recipe to restore trust. I, I get that it's important to have everyone under one roof and in-person diplomacy, face-to-face -face diplomacy. Some things are just not as fun when you do them by Zoom. So I'm all on board with that. It's the idea that, oh, we have to bring everyone to a remote Swiss village. <laughs> Uh, that's the way we understand what's happening in the world. We have to bring everyone. It has to be a remote Swiss village like Davos that's going to give us the preconditions for cooperation, for building trust. That's all what we're supposed to accept and take at face value here. Now, what I find important to note here is that oftentimes Davos is basically a safe space for the elites, where the people that go there are not used to being challenged. They're not used to people asking them questions. I, I tried to do an interview with Mark Carney, and he actually, to his credit, had a, a good sense of humor when he was uh, rebuffing me. You can find the clip online, but Mark Carney was uh, basically saying, oh, I don't do spontaneous interviews. And I asked him the next day when I ran into him if we could do the interview then because it would be less spontaneous. And he said, oh, Andrew, but think of how much less spontaneous it'll be tomorrow. Well, uh, tomorrow will be next week and I'll ask him uh, you've had a year to cogitate on this now perhaps we can have that non-spontaneous interview but what was fascinating to me 
is how so many of these elites were not even believing what they were selling. There, there was one session in particular where uh, India's petroleum minister, Minister Puri, was speaking alongside some other energy and resource ministers, and they're all talking on stage about how we need to accelerate the transition away from oil and gas, we need to get off fossil fuels, green energy is the future. And I, I found him on the street I found him on the street, not like living on the street. I found him walking on the street. I realized that sounded bad. And I just asked him a very fundamental question. Take a look. Uh, you were on a panel about oil and gas and energy yeah, this yeah, morning. Do you yeah. think uh, phasing out of fossil fuels is actually a realistic goal? Look, uh, I said what I had to. But, you know, if you were to do that survey in uh, different parts of the world, if you were to do it, for instance, in South, Ash South Asia or Africa, or in uh, Latin America, you'd get results that might be a little different from the kind of results you're getting here. So the survey he mentioned was when the moderator of the panel just asked everyone in the room and on stage about the transition and whether they can do it, and they all just put up their hands and say, yeah, we're doing that. And then he admits, like, an hour later on the streets of Davos, that was on the promenade, which is the, the main drag there, that, oh, yeah, I said what I had to, but if you talk to everyone else uh, outside of the world, they're going to think about it differently. Well, why didn't you say that in the room? Why didn't you say that these prescriptions that are being laid out in Davos do not actually align with what the governed deal with and what the governed think and what the governed have to do in their own lives? So if you want to rebuild trust, don't have it in the remote Swiss village of Davos. Actually have it in, uh, uh, have it in Calcutta. Have it in uh, downtown Philadelphia. Have it in a city that is filled with the very people who are most affected by the things that are discussed in the remote Swiss mountain village. And that's the big frustration that I have with this thing, is that they want to have these high-level discussions, and they want to have discussions about things that to them are abstract, but to people like you and I are very real. One in particular, just to go through the highlights from May, was Julie Inman-Grant, who is the e-safety commissioner of Australia, uh, just nonchalantly talking about how, well, we, we need to think about things in the modern world, and maybe things like free speech don't even need to have the same meaning they always have for us. We are finding ourselves in a place um, where we're, we have increasing polarization <laughs> everywhere and everything feels binary when it doesn't need to be. So I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, you know, from freedom of speech to the freedom to, you know, to be free from on online violence or the uh, right of data protection to the right to child dignity. You know, I'm all for having a recalibration of free speech too, but mine is not the same definition of the World Economic Forum when it comes to recalibrating because I actually want genuine free speech here, not this thing that we have to muddy around and change the name of and change the meaning of for people. And what I find uh, noteworthy about this is that you may have heard in the last few months, uh, Pierre Polyev has really committed to this idea that things are broken in Canada, that people are broken, that people are hurting, that systems aren't working. And Justin Trudeau was so offended, was just so aggravated and angered by this. How dare you say that things are broken in Canada? Things are great. We're working through it. We're What I find interesting here is that the WEF narrative right now 
is ironically very similar to the Polyev narrative, not in the same way, but uh, they're saying that everything's broken. They're saying we have crises, we have inflation, we have cost of living, we have war, we have climate change. I, I don't agree with what they're saying are all the crises, but they're saying that everything's in crisis and the prescription is more cooperation by the World Economic Forum. Well, the World Economic Forum has been meeting for the last 50 years. So I don't actually think the World Economic Forum has been the salvation of the world's problems. Vladimir Putin, two years ago, was a keynote speaker at Davos and uh, about a year ago invaded Ukraine. You may have seen it on the news, made a big splash. People are still going over there. So if the WEF was this great platform for fostering cooperation, how did having Vladimir Putin at the table a year before the invasion of Ukraine do anything to help the people of Europe? It didn't. It absolutely didn't. Xi Jinping has also spoken there. This time around, we've got the head of the WHO, Dr. Dr. Uh, Tedros uh, Adhanom. So uh, all of these people, you can bring them there. You can load them up into a room. You can have a party bus of world elites. But by your own admission, WEF, the world is not getting better. It's getting worse. So why are we supposed to believe that these people have all the solutions? Instead, they have this, uh, what is effectively a transfer of power and a transfer of resources that they prescribe. We want to transfer away from oil and gas. Great. What it means is more control to governments, more control to the corporations that had the foresight to uh, hang out in Davos with leaders of government. So this is going to be uh, something that we commit to covering next week. As I said, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow night. Uh, we'll have a little bit of some scene-setting coverage from the ground in Switzerland. And then all next week, we will do everything we can to uh, give you the news that you're not finding anywhere else. And if you have any questions, by the way, do share them in the comments, things you're curious about. I might do a little bit of an Ask Me Anything type thing uh, probably after. But if there's anything you're looking for, we can, of course, find ways to do that. And I believe uh, one of our... Uh, team members here has said that they're going to put a poll out on Facebook about uh, how many crickets I should eat at the WEF. Uh, if he does that, please, please, please select zero for my own sake and yours. Because if, if I come to the, this and I have like wings and legs sticking out of my teeth, it won't be a pretty sight on there. So we'll save the cricket sandwich for afterwards. Uh, Want to shift gears. Speaking of the concentration of government control to something we started off talking a bit about yesterday and I wanted to dig further into today, which is the federal government's use of PEI, I'll say abuse of PEI, as a trial run for the national gun confiscation that is coming, the government claims, in spring of 2023. So uh, just to set the stage here, what happened is the government in 2020 prohibited 1,500 types of what they call assault-style firearms. On this list was the AR-15. Uh, there was also the Mini-14. There were a number of other guns used for sports shooting, some used for hunting, uh, some that had been used without issue in Canada for years. And the government prohibited them overnight. And if you had one of those, you would be a criminal had the government not put in place an amnesty that lasted two years. And the government said, we're going to buy all these from you. So 2022 comes around. They do not have the buyback program in place. So they kicked the amnesty back to October of 2023. So now the government buys itself a little bit more time. They still, at this point, January 2023, do not have this buyback in place. So what they're talking about is doing one in 
PEI, and they say it's already underway, commenced in December 2022 and going right to the end of the amnesty period. The RCMP is going to lead this along with the Public Safety Department. That's Marco Mendicino's division. And they're going to use this as a pilot project, collect information, and then in a national rollout in spring of 2023. So coming up theoretically as soon as two to three months from now, they'll expand this nationally. So uh, basically, the government is picking on PEI gun owners, making them the first victims of this property confiscation. I want to welcome into the show here a gentleman from PEI who knows the firearms issue very well. Uh, He is the president of the PEI Wildlife Federation. His name is Duncan Crawford. Uh, Duncan, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So first off, what did all of you do? Why are you drawing the short stick here? Why is the government picking on you guys? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, it kind of snuck up on us. I, I never received any official notice, and I, I deal with our um, firearms office on a pretty regular basis, uh, being a, you know, a small business uh, dealer in firearms and ammunition. Uh, so yeah, it came as a bit of a surprise. And then I've heard through the grapevine that various people have been contacted, um, strangely like folks that are now deceased next to kin have been contacted regarding certain firearms and where they might be. So, um, yeah. And then of course, see the article that you would have seen. And, um, as a small shop owner, uh, we've, we've had more questions than answers. Now, just on the note of you being a shop owner, do you have inventory that's been frozen since May 2020? Uh, there might be a couple items, not, not too much. I don't stock a ton of uh, items. I, I'm a, I own a taxidermy studio and a number of other things. So I specialize in um, firearms and ammunition that are strictly used for hunting. Uh, and more often than not, I, most of my clientele and customers have very specific wants. So they'll tell me what they want. I source it. I get it in. Uh, we maintain a, quite a small inventory. I do know uh, some of the larger shops uh, in the region, uh, especially New Brunswick. Some of them get hung with just you know a pile of inventory. Um, anyway, it's it's pretty awful when that happens. Yeah, I mean, when I did a, a documentary about this uh, in uh, April of 2021, we went around filming it. We had business owners that we spoke to that had like six figures of, of inventory. And I followed up with them a few months ago, still sitting there because the buyback hasn't materialized. They can't sell it. They they can't return it. Uh, you know, government understandably picks PEI because it's small and manageable. I think the entire island has a population of like 160,000. Uh, I don't know how many gun owners there are, but compare, compared to anywhere else, uh, provincially speaking, you'd be looking at a pretty small number, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were one, another uh, shop owner and I were talking yesterday. I mean, you know, I think if we pulled the database, there's probably upwards of 1500 license holders, which is of course, right around 1%. Um, but in terms of active, uh, we're thinking like around 400 maybe. Yeah, so 400 people, the government wants to do this, see how it goes, uh, learn some lessons and, and export it nationally. And, you know, I think that the PEI case is, is very important here because we'll see how many people actually want to do it. I, I mean, right now, anyone I've spoken to is kind of of the mind that they're holding on to it until the very last day they legally can because they're hoping that maybe there's some change in course or some change in government uh, that that precipitates this. Whereas, uh, 
You know, if you're in PEI right now, I mean, technically you can hold that gun legally until October of 2023. I don't know what the motivation is for people to hand it over now. I, I don't think there is any motivation. I think there's a lot of um, misinformation and, and lack of knowledge. A lot of people just haven't taken the time to look at that list. Uh, I think a lot of people think that this is targeting specifically, you know, military grade, quote unquote, firearms, which is a ridiculous misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite frankly, when you look at that list, there's there's antique single shots, there's sporting doubles, there's firearms that are used strictly for hunting uh, and don't necessarily have high capacity magazines and all these other um, buzzwords that they're using. Um, and when you start talking, you know, some of the older population get, get a little bit freaked out. So um, my concern is, you know, if somebody's worried and they don't necessarily want to walk into the firearms office, what are they going to do, right? Like when the Liberal government implemented these new restrictions on handguns last year, that was the, the single greatest selling of handguns in Canadian history. Any, any handgun that was out there basically got purchased um, uh, out of fear that you weren't going to be able to get them at some point in the future. So, you know, I understand the concept, but it's, it's misguided and I don't think it's going to achieve what, what it is they're trying to do. Uh, and certainly not to the, to the effect of, of taking, you know, guns, the guns that are creating street violence in Canada are, are coming in illegally. They're being smuggled in. Um, these are not lawful gun owners, uh, that are vetted and, obviously have background checks and have to submit all their key information. Um, The whole thing is just, it's ridiculous. How is the political culture in in PEI about guns? Because I I know it's not an an insanely conservative place. You have uh, certainly conservative pockets there, but I know it's elected conservative MPs at some times. It's more liberal now. So uh, do you find that people there who are not gun owners themselves are gun friendly or, or do you find out that's not the case yeah it's it's interesting like you know we have a lot of friends that uh really have no connection to uh firearms or their use and generally i think it's a a sentiment of apathy like they really they're indifferent to firearms ownership right um like any person they're they're against gun violence uh again on that side of the fence most of them don't understand the steps that we have to go through to, to purchase and own a firearm in Canada and the degree to which we're scrutinized and consistently regulated. Um, and when you, you know, if you have an open-minded person, you have that discussion, they, they go, oh, okay, well, that's, that's great. I understand. Um, I think like so many things, it's easy to be apathetic when you, when you force somebody to have an opinion and they don't have background or they don't have context or family that have used firearms for, for whether it be Olympic skeet shooting or target rifle shooting, um, or hunting, you know, it's pretty hard to get them on side, right? So, uh, and I think that's probably true of a lot of Canada, you know, the the people that, yeah. Well, and also to go back to your point about the fear mongering about different types of guns, when the government commits to language like assault style, military grade terms that are political terms that the government has applied because it's convenient, not because they have any universal meaning or even accurate, that does scare someone who has no idea what a gun is. I mean, the number of people that I've heard from in the past that hear semi-automatic and the word that jumps out in that is automatic. So they think they're talking about some Gatlin gun mounted on like the back of a truck like and because people don't know and i think the government really uses that to its advantage that there is that lack of knowledge out there 
Of course. And like to, to the math we talked about earlier, uh, 90%, 99% of the population that um, obviously don't own, own firearms are going to be afraid of some of that language. And I think it's, I think it's intentional. I think it's targeted. Um, you know, and I watched some of uh, Mr. Mandicino's, um, you know, question period stuff. I mean, when you have somebody that really doesn't understand, they're talking about, you know, what's going to happen when I, when I shoot at a deer with a, a rifle that has, you know, 10,000 joules of force. Well, hunters don't, that, that's a ridiculous conversation. And it's very evident that, you know, there's no knowledge. Uh, I, I don't think it serves them well that they don't put professionals in that role to assess that. I mean, there's all kinds of liberal gun owners in Canada. And I'm sure there must be, I mean, when I was with the Hunter and Angler Advisory Panel, we had liberals uh, in caucus that I have to think they would be better suited. But my guess is they're not being used because they would probably be more aligned with maintaining gun ownership in Canada. You mentioned the advisory panel, and I think this is actually an important thing because the government tried to pretend early on that it was going to listen to gun owners and listen to people with skin in the game. But I, I've talked to other people that have been involved in these consultation processes, and everything that was told to them was effectively disregarded when it came time to drafting legislation and orders in council. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, historically, we would we would get emails, we would get consultation, like the various uh, wildlife federations in Canada um indigenous groups like stakeholders that regularly and consistently use firearms hunters fishers outdoors people uh people in the north um ex-military sport shooters i feel like we all at least had some say and there was some opportunity to review like frankly it's been crickets for the last i'm gonna say at least five years around uh legislative change um as it pertains to firearms ownership well, keep up the good fight there. Hopefully we'll uh, get some change there that'll let you guys uh, keep your property and that of everyone else in the country as well. Uh, Duncan Crawford joining me from PEI. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Andrew. Appreciate the time. All right, absolutely. And just one thing I would point out on this report from Public Safety Canada here. Uh, they said that they released a request for information to get feedback from the industry on potential capacity to support delivery of the buyback program. So they actually put out a call for, hey, who can help us run this buyback? And this line is great. The uh, request for information closed on August 31st, 2022 with very limited interest from the industry. So they weren't even getting companies that were jumping up and down saying, yeah, we think we can run this buyback, which should tell you something right there. We've got to end things there. I will be here for Fake News Friday on Friday, uh, pre-recorded with the magic of internet. Uh, but I will be joining you from Davos, Switzerland next week. So do tune into that. And let me just say, that uh, this is a, a very important uh, assignment, if I call it that, because uh, this is something that matters to a lot of us. It matters because we have a Canadian government that is all too willing to hitch itself to this particular agenda. And I think it's incredibly important. When I was there last time, there was no other journalist from Canada present 
to cover this. The only other member of the media in Canada was an editor of a publication in Canada who was there as an invited guest of the World Economic Forum. So no one was actually reporting on it uh, except for True North. Rebel was as well, but they didn't have any of their uh, Canadian team members there at the time. So if you can support True North's work in this, please, please do head over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. And if you contribute to enough that I can buy a meal that's not a bug sandwich, I would be very gratefully, uh, gr very grateful and very appreciative. Uh, but if you want me to eat the bug sandwich anyway, donate. We should set up like a dunk tank type thing where, you know, if our fundraising hits this level, uh, I have to down the uh, cricket stew or whatever they're serving at the uh, lovely cafe in Davos on the promenade. And that'll do it for me. I will talk to you all soon. Thank you. God bless. And auf Wiedersehen. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.